second. The lesson today, I tried to make up a title so y'all would stay awake, and I hope it works. A stone, a snake, and a mirror. So you Old Testament scholars, you've probably, you might guess at what the stone is. I know, Randy, you've already found the snake in this lesson. And the mirror, you're going to be racking your brain. Where is a mirror? I'll get there. So let's look at the next slide. That's the stone. And it was a man-made stone. Uh, they took probably clay and baked it in an oven and created this hexagonal shape that had surfaces that were flat that they could write on. Why would you do that? Well, they didn't have Instagram or Facebook, right? So they had to put their stuff out there to almost to brag in that day. Had six different sides so they could write an awful lot. Well, in that day, they could have used scrolls. Kind of hard to keep up with scrolls. Kind of hard to preserve them. They had history books, maybe. They had scribes recording things, but kind of hard to keep up with that. And, and this is more personal. It's not like a history book. It's like a king saying, look what I've done. And he puts it on a stone. It was made by an Assyrian king. We think about Assyria as one of the kingdoms that was really strong back then. Uh, he was bragging on this. If you zoom in really close, and I know you can't, but if you, just imagine you zoom into the very bottom of it. There's a place on there, and it says this. Trapped like a bird in a cage. He was bragging. He was super proud of himself because he had taken God's people. They were stuck in the city of Jerusalem behind the walls, and he had them trapped like a bird in a cage, and he was bragging on this stone. Pretty cool, huh? Not as cool as Facebook nowadays, but still pretty cool. The funny part is, though, he didn't even win, Risa. He didn't even win. He just had them captured there, but he couldn't overtake Jerusalem. He couldn't destroy Jerusalem. He wasn't able to. It's also said uh, this artifact and many, many others take and prove. We read our Bibles, and we trust our Bibles. We know what they say, and all of the stories we read in there, we, we can follow them all the way through, and we believe that it's inspired Word of God, and we follow it through. There's a lot of people in this world that don't, and you can show them this stone, and it tells the story that corroborates what's found in the Bible. They unearthed a palace, and it was pretty cool. I was reading about this, studying for the lesson. It was a palace of the King Sargon of Assyria. And as they were digging through it, they just kept finding things. And they found the walls of the palace. And on the walls of the palace, he had inscribed pictures, beautiful pictures. He had inscribed tons of words about all of the great things that he had done. Over 900 feet of walls. Imagine walking around this whole building looking at pictures and words to describe what this king had done. Amazing, amazing. So we're not going to study Sargon. You think about Assyria, the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, right, Randy? Or, uh, what happened to Nineveh? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, right? Uh, we're not going to study about Jonah. Who could we study about? The story we're going to look at today centers around probably one of the best kings in the southern kingdom, which was Judah. His name was Hezekiah. And there's a lot of really good accounts about Hezekiah, probably one of the ones that's written about the most in the Old Testament books of the kings. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah, all of those relate some of his life story. And our scripture reading was found in Second Kings chapter 18, verses 3 through 7. I want to touch on some high points. David, you did a good job reading that. I appreciate it. But it said he did what was right on the side of the Lord. And it linked him back to David, who was the king that they all loved. He tore down the high places. He broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. He did all of those things. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. And I love this expression here. It says there was none other like him among all the kings. And this is the ones that were before him and the ones that were after him. 
He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments. The Lord was with him. So if you're posting something on a stone or on social media, wouldn't you want every one of those words to describe you? Let's look and see how we can look at that, how we can, I guess, follow that example today and see how that fits us, if it does. He started ruling when he was 25 years ago, years old. If you look at Kyle, Kyle's 25. He was the king of Judah at Kyle's age. That's scary, Kyle, isn't it? <laughs> started when he was 25. He watched his father rule from the time he was 12. Uh, one of the references I, I found said that he was a co-regent, so he spent his time even alongside his father while his father was ruling. He reigned for 29 years. How did he become the king that was described just now? How did he reach that point? Well, I can tell you, it sure wasn't from watching his dad. If you look at this description and you say, how will I turn it around and say just exactly the opposite, you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and they talk about King Ahaz, his father. He was just awful. It says, real simple, Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had. And we see even, not only was he bad every day, he was really bad when things got tough. When distress came along, when calamity, when all sorts of things faced him, he got even worse. And we read in the Bible about this king Ahaz, he was so bad that he went into the temple of God that Solomon had built and he broke the articles of the temple into pieces. He shut the door of the temple and he went even so far, I think we've got another slide coming up, he went even so far as to set up these forms of idols. They were called high places. This is an example. I find all this stuff on Google, and I hope it's right. But you can imagine, that's, a, that's like a high place that you set up, and you put something on it to worship. Now, it would be nice if they're worshiping God, but it's likely they were worshiping other things, and we read about that. There's another example of what they might have worshiped, and this is kind of a campy one. Keely, I knew you would love this one. But this almost looks like what he had done. The wooden image you see beside it was a carving, more likely, of Asher or Asherah, which was a, a goddess that they worshiped in those days. Um, it's a piece of wood. It's a piece of wood. How, how do you go out of the city and look up at a, at a high place and worship a piece of wood? Baffling, baffling. Makes no sense at all. He went so far as to set up these altars in every corner of the city of Jerusalem. He went so far as to put them in every city of the kingdom of Judah. Everywhere you went, you would find these altars that people worship. That's Ahaz. Hezekiah, no, I'm not going to be like that. So we've seen the stone. We're going to see the snake here in a minute. You're still thinking about the mirror, right, Randy? You got the mirror yet? Hang on, because it's coming. Before we get there, though, uh, who was probably one of the major prophets of that day? Probably one of the biggest ones. Major prophet? Isaiah? Isaiah was around during the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah and even a couple of kings before that. I want you to look at some of the words of of Isaiah, God spoke through Isaiah, and, and it was really common for Isaiah when he says it. He says, thus says the Lord. He's speaking like God's coming right through him. He had some strong words to the kings of the day, especially ones that were doing evil. He had some inspirational words for the people of God, and we even find inspiration in some of those words today. We can quote some of those. So the first one I found in chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14. Maybe you can read that. It may be too small. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
You've heard that before. You've quoted that before, probably. Uh, the next one is found in chapter 9, verse 6. And I had to, we had a vacation Bible school about prophecies of Jesus. And I worked with Johnny and Kathy, and they, they had me quote this. I had to memorize it, and I don't have it memorized today. But it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is Isaiah speaking. He's speaking to his contemporaries in that world, but wow, we hear that message to us, don't we? One more thing in chapter 11, and I didn't put it on the screen, but he talks about the branch, the branch that will come from the stem of Jesse. You remember Jesse was David's father. That's the line that we're describing. We see all three of those. It's got to be talking about Jesus, don't it? This means yes. It's got to be talking about Jesus. Right, definitely. But he was talking to his contemporaries. So what did it mean to them? Most prophecy had a dual meaning. It's likely here it's talking about the son, the son of Ahaz that would follow, who would be Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good and righteous king. The name Hezekiah means God is my strength, which compares somewhat favorably to Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you see some striking comparisons between Jesus and Hezekiah. I want to point just a couple of these out. They both purified the temple, uh, opened the door of the temple, Hezekiah did. They cleansed the priesthood. And when you read in the genealogy, uh, in Matthew, the genealogy that tells how you get to Jesus, it starts with Abraham, and it goes all the way down through history. There's like 41 different names. Right here in the middle, at about number 24, you'll find Hezekiah. He's in that chain, so he's out of that branch too. He has to come in that same line. We also see another story about Hezekiah that's interesting. I won't go into it all right now. We'll come back to it, but... You remember in his life where he was very, very ill. The prophet Isaiah came to him and said, Hezekiah, you need to get your house in order because you're going to die. It's really tough news, hard to, hard to hear, hard to understand. And I'll talk about it more later, but ultimately we know that God allowed Hezekiah to live, allowed him to live longer. And the link to Jesus in this is Isaiah comes back to him. He's on his deathbed laying there. He comes back to him and he says, in three days... You're going to get up and go back to worship again. So he's down, he's near death. In three days, he'll go back in the presence of his God. See the comparison? Kind of like Jesus. He was in the grave three days, and then he rose. Anyway, I think that fits. I hope it fits for y'all too. One of the neatest links, Randy, I'm coming to the snake. One of the neatest links was the bronze serpent. And I want you to look at this slide. This is an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. We don't know. Um, some even compare it to the, there's a medical symbol today that's got a snake on a pole. Maybe there's a link to that too, I don't know. But uh, I, did a, I did a Lord's Supper presentation back in, um, I guess it's earlier in February, a month ago, thinking about this lesson, working toward it. And the story behind this pole with the snake on it ties back to Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, Moses was leading God's people going across the wilderness trying to get to Canaan's land. And they're barely out of Egypt and they're already complaining. They're already griping. They're complaining there's no food, there's no water. They had manna. Manna was given to them. Every time they wanted water and they griped, they seemed to have water given to them. Their quote was, you brought us out here to die. 
God has delivered them from Egypt. He's provided for their needs, and they're still complaining. God sent fiery serpents out amongst the people. When they bit them, they died. And Moses saw this happening. God's disgruntled people, they realized, oh, we've messed up. Moses saw it happen, and he prayed fervently to God, and God gave him a solution. He said, make this pole, put a bronze serpent on it, and when you hold the, the pole up, Trey, if you're bitten by a snake and you look at this pole, you will survive. Without it, you die. You remember that story? It's kind of weird. You, you, we don't study it ever at all. Okay, I'm jumping way ahead. In, in John chapter 3, verse 16, you know that verse. Everybody can quote it, right? Look two verses before that, John chapter 3, verse 14. And it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the connection? You see the connection? How that saved God's people then, Jesus, the Son of Man, was lifted up on a cross to save us. So... What does Hezekiah have to do with this? When Hezekiah came into power, began to reign, one of the first things he did was he took that image and he tore it down. He broke it because it had become something that was not a source of salvation for God's people. The short answer for Hezekiah is he became their temporary salvation. That idol did not. They were burning incense to it. It had become something they worshipped, which wasn't God. Hezekiah saved them temporarily, but you know, Hezekiah was still human. And at some point, another came along, and Hezekiah even got weak toward the end of his life. The serpent on a pole, King Hezekiah, neither were capable of providing permanent salvation. Yet the one, the shadow of what's to come, Jesus will and does. So, those are some neat links to Jesus. Think about Hezekiah, the things we've already talked about. How can we apply what we've talked about to our lives so the first thing you might say is okay hezekiah we read about him and it points us to jesus and we need to be looking toward jesus it, it ought to help us see that connection right exactly right the other thing you might say is okay we, we heard that he didn't follow a bad example so, and we shouldn't either we ought to live our lives try to be better than the examples exactly so we ought to both of those ought to fit but we haven't really dug into the story of the king hezekiah there are four particular things that I want to point out, and then your lesson will be yours. Let's look at how he responds to challenges or changes in his life, what that does to him, how he responds, how he, how he comes back around after that. His life changed, and he had to adapt. So the first thing, the biggest change in his life, he, well, let me talk about it all. He's, got the, he's a new king, and then there's a time in his life where he has an invasion. The third one, he's an illness near death, and then the fourth one is prosperity toward the end of his reign. So let's look at the first one, when he was a new king. We read, David read that for us. Um, when he was a new king, he did everything right. He had a tremendous zeal to serve God. He did what was right in God's eyes, we read. He was like David, which is a really good comparison. He got rid of everything that was evil. He smashed the idols. He trusted God. He did not depart from what God told him to do. He held fast. All of those things. None like him before. Another great thing to put on a stone or on your uh, social media. <clears throat> he even went so far as to fix God's house. Okay. What's that mean to us? How, how can we or when in our life can we ever be like that? 
The first thing that came to mind is when you first become a Christian. Everybody stop and think of your life at the point in your life where you became a Christian. That very instant, that very moment, how you felt. What you wanted to do. What your, what your objective was. What your plan was. How, how, how am I going to be God's child? You were on fire, weren't you? Weren't you just so excited to finally become a Christian? You wanted to do everything right. Everything. You didn't even want to get close enough to sniff anything evil. You wanted to stay away from it. You wanted to put, we wanted to put our full trust in God. Wouldn't you like those descriptions to match our lives today in every way? You know, it's easy to have that zeal when you start, but how do you sustain it, Mr. Gary, through year after year after year of being a Christian? Sometimes it's hard, isn't it? So the next thing that he faced was the challenge of an invasion. Uh, and You Old Testament history guys are, may like this better than others, but hang with me because we'll get through it. In his fourth year as a king, there was an invasion of the northern kingdom. He was in the south. The northern kingdom got invaded. The Assyrians came down and attacked him. He'd been a king four years. Kyle didn't make him 29. Three years later, that northern kingdom was taken Many of them were carried off into captivity in Assyria. I think one of the references I, said, I read said 27,000 people uprooted from their homes carried off into Assyria for captivity. After he'd been king for 14 years, the Syrians are knocking on his door. Why stop in the northern kingdom? Let's get the southern one too. That's where you see that, that image of being trapped like a bird in a cage. Initially, when they came to knock on his door, the first thing they did was every city around Jerusalem, they captured those. They defeated them. And so all we're left is a remnant of God's people huddled up in the city of Jerusalem waiting for the inevitable and fearful. Their king was fearful. And the first thing he did, he absolutely failed the test. And this is the good king Hezekiah, but he failed the test. He begged for mercy. He reached out to the Assyrians and he wanted mercy. He offered them a bribe. A bribe? 300 talents of silver, and you can Google that if you have your phones, don't do it now, but you can Google 300 talents of silver. There's a, there's a currency exchange for today. It's worth $8 million. He also gave him 30 talents of gold. You can Google that as well. $63 million in today's money value. All told, you add those up, it's over $70 million worth of a bribe. Did it work? No. Put that in today's terms for you young people. Um, Patrick Mahomes doesn't make $70 million a year. Josh Allen does not make $70 million a year. These are NFL quarterbacks, some of the best in the game. But he gave all that away. Um, you baseball players, Mike Trout does not make $70 million in a year. He failed. And even worse, when Hezekiah had first come into power, we don't read this in Second Kings, we find later that when, when he moved in, when he became the king, and I don't know how to describe it any better than maybe just showing it up here. So the doors of the temple are huge. They're beautiful wooden structure, but it wasn't good enough. For Hezekiah, he wants to show them more, more respect, more praise to God. And so he takes every one of these and he plates them with gold, overlays everything with gold. And then the posts, the columns that held the doors up, they were, they were covered with gold. So put those two together. I don't know the answer, but I wonder where he got his gold to pay his bribe. Wouldn't that be a disgrace? Wouldn't that be a shame to start off with the zeal to put it on the, on the door facing and then ultimately tear it down to give it to an Assyrian to pay tribute? That's bad. It got worse because, Michael, the, the bribe didn't work. 
<laughs> Can you imagine you, you offer somebody a bribe and they're still the most powerful thing in the world? They're going to come after you anyway. The second response was better. The Assyrian king Sennacherib came and he brought his envoys to speak to him, or envoys, however you say that word. And they were yelling up there to the top of the, the wall. And ultimately Hezekiah realized that I can't do this by myself. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He went into the temple of the Lord and he reached out to find Isaiah, who he knew was the source that God spoke to them through Isaiah. He asked God for help. And it's a really good answer. God just told him, hey, this is going to be fixed. We're going to get rid of these people. You're not going to have a problem anymore. I'm paraphrasing that. But he had every reason to trust what Isaiah said from the, from the Lord. But he didn't. He wavered again. The Assyrians sent more. They sent letters, sent messages to him. Okay, this is the best part I want you to see about how he responded. He had, he had letters that had come from Assyria. At this time, he knew you don't even look anywhere else. So he took it into the temple of God, and he spread it out in front of God and said, I need some help. I can't do this. Total, complete surrender to God's will because he knew he couldn't handle it. The best response of all. That's one of the reasons we love reading about Hezekiah. Perfect response. Listen to his prayer. Here's what he said to God at that moment. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. I'm going to skip the part about the Assyrians. And he says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Great answer. That's how we ought to respond when life throws us things. But why did he wait till last? Why didn't he start that way? Why don't we start that way? What do we do when we're overwhelmed by challenges? Life seems to be crashing down all around us. Evil knocking at our gate. How can we resist? Frequently, we try to do like Hezekiah. We'll just solve it ourselves, right? I got this. Uh, sometimes we even throw money at it, trying to make it go away. Sometimes we take the money or the talents, things that belong to God, and we take them away from God, and we put them towards something that really doesn't deserve it, doesn't need it. Can't we see from the example of Hezekiah how much better it is to start with God, to spread our problems out in front of him and put it in front of him for help? Now, let me pause just a second. I, I will say that I'm, I'm not recommending anytime something faces you, you just immediately go pray and stop and sit on your hands because he didn't do that either. Uh, some of the neatest stories about Hezekiah are found when he's in this distress. He's trying to do what he can. He trusts in God. He knows what God's going to do. He has to give his people something to do, and he has to have things to do himself. They prepared for a siege. They knew God would deliver them, but they still felt like they needed to prepare. They fixed their walls. They built an additional wall. They built weapons and shields. The most cool thing that he did, you should Google this. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but they took a spring, Randy, and they rerouted it under the city. It's like they chiseled out through stone a passage for water, a tunnel for water to come so the people would have water and so the Assyrians wouldn't have it. It's an amazing engineering feat. They didn't sit on their hands. They kept working. But it should have started with God. Okay, the next thing he faced was his illness. He was sick near death. Here's what Isaiah told him. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. 
I don't know why he said that afterwards, but it emphasized the point. That's a tough prophecy. When a prophet comes into you and throws that at you, it had to be horrible. It had to be tough. Why? You don't find it in 2 Kings. You've got to look elsewhere, deeper in the Bible, in 2 Chronicles. It says the reason God did this to him is because he did not repay for the favor that was shown. God had shown him favor. Hezekiah didn't respond as he should have. It also says his heart was lifted up, which we would say he was super proud, too proud, full of himself. Another case where he's faced with something that's scary that he doesn't know what to do, he responded well. It says that he wept bitterly. Now, what's it mean when you cry? Was he scared? Was he afraid to die? Did he cry because he was fearful of that? I think sometimes you can maybe read a little more into it that it was a cry almost of repentance. He knew that he wasn't right in the eyes of God. He knew he wasn't living as the way God would have him to. He turned toward the wall and he prayed. Here's what he said to God. Remember, God, I walked before you in truth and I had a loyal heart toward you. I've done what is right, pleading with God. We know ultimately God gave him an additional 15 years. Uh, there's more to that story, and I would encourage you to Google the sundial of Ahaz. It'll tell you more of that, but there was a, uh, the short version, there was a sundial, which means when the sun's in the sky and it's shining, it casts a shadow based on the position of the sundial. God proved to Hezekiah, here's, here's that I'm going to do this for you and save you and let you live longer. I'll make the sun move in relation to the dial. So the easy answer was to make it look like the sun went down. Right, Trey? I mean, surely that would be easy. Or make it look like it went back up. That's what he chose, and God did that to prove it to him. Pretty cool. There's more to that story, too, the link to Jesus. Uh, the, some of the commentaries I read studying this, Hezekiah was a king. At that point in life, he didn't have an heir. How can Abraham go through Hezekiah to Jesus with no heir? We know that he lived an additional 15 years. We also read that his son was 12 when he stopped reigning. So part of God's plan could have been to keep him alive long enough to create an heir for him to pass along. Don't know. That's an interesting read. I don't know that I can corroborate it totally, but it is interesting to see that line to Jesus still connects. So what do we do when we're faced with illness? Uh, maybe when we're like the Malones and she's in the hospital expecting, hopefully they've delivered a healthy baby now. We pray. If it's really bad, we pray really hard. Some people don't, though. Some people faced with adversity like that and sickness or an illness, any kind of problem faces them, they turn away from God instead of turning to God. Exactly the wrong reaction. But more to it with Hezekiah, we described his pride. How he didn't give back to God, repay the favor that God had shown him. Can that happen with us? We've got everything. Our generation, our world, our people around us. We've got houses, we've got boats, we've got cars, we've got money, we've got everything. We can just be happy with that. We almost reached a point where we don't even realize... God was responsible. We don't give him glory for any of that. We forget to acknowledge him for the things that we have. You know, for Hezekiah, he kind of got a swift kick in the seat of his pants to get his attention, to get him focused again on God. Sometimes we need that too. The last one, prosperity. At the end of Hezekiah's life, God had saved him, allowed him to live for many more, many more years. How did he respond? 
It's kind of sad because at that point, I guess he was just so elated that he was going to live longer, he lost sight of God again. He had a, an interest by the, the country of Babylon. They sent the son of the king to visit with him. And, and I described it in early church. It's like he brought him a get well soon card and a present because he heard he got well and was going to live. Hezekiah just bent over backwards, so happy to see the prince of Babylon. He didn't really need to do anything other than to accept the gift graciously and send him on back to Babylon. But Hezekiah decides, well, look here, look what we've got. He took that opportunity to be very attentive to anything that the Babylonian prince wanted to see. He walked him around. He showed him everything. He showed him his treasury. Why? He showed him all of his silver, all of his gold, all of his spices, all of his ointments, all of his armory, all of his treasures. Why? You can put that stuff on Facebook, but you don't show it to your future enemy. Was he bragging? Was he showing off? After God had saved him and allowed him to live longer. It's kind of sad, but let me stop for a second, though. We still have that description of Hezekiah. Even though he was weak, even though he failed at times, he still was an incredible king for God. What do we do? What do we do in times of prosperity? Do we get that way too? Do we get proud of the things that we have? The things that are ours but really came from God? Should we be reminded uh, from this story and others how we need to respond to God? And even make it personal here. We, we have great things here at Valley View. We have a great facility that we can come together and worship God in. We have great people, a great family. We have everything that you would want as a church. Sometimes do we get kind of smug in that, though? And it's more about here and us than about him? I think it became that way for Hezekiah, and we need to be very cautious that it be, doesn't become that way with us. We're human. We're human just like Hezekiah. We're subject to all of the weaknesses and the failures that he faced, we face as well. So, look at all of those together. How can we be like that first one? How can we be that type of person like a new Christian? How can we have the zeal, have the humility, have the modesty? How can we devote ourselves fully to what God intends for us to do? How can we surrender ourselves to God? In every step, we're seeking His will. In every step, we're seeking His ways and His guidance. How can we do that? It's kind of heavy to think about, isn't it? I want to leave you with a quote from Hezekiah, and I'm going to leave out the part about the Syrians too, but listen to his words. His people went through this whole rigmarole with him, and he felt the need to encourage them. Here's what he said. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed. And here's the part I want you to catch. He said, for there are more with us than with him. Isn't that the case for the body of Christ today? No matter what's going on in the world around us, there's more with us. We're going to win. We just got to stay firm. If there's something you've heard in this lesson today, uh, especially the part about uh, being a new Christian, if it's made you think, if you've been studying and you want to be a Christian, today would be the absolute perfect day to do that. If you're ready to be baptized and start that walk, now would be a great time to do that. But if there's other things that came up in this lesson about how we're living our life, how you're walking, what you've succeeded in, what you failed in, and you need the prayers of the church, or you want to come back to the church to be restored, if you will, come now while we stand and while we sing.